And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Friday, December 29th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, the telework debate dominated 2023. Will it finally settle out in 24? Plus, this senior executive is all about effective acquisition with finesse to support what's going on at the border. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, a big change has taken place in how the military tries sexual assault cases. Special trial counsel offices are now responsible for handling such cases and not the chain of command in which the case might have originated. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said these offices are now fully operational. Austin called this the most important reform to the Uniform Code of Military Justice since its creation in 1950. Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis has details. Anastasia, why did this come about now? I think this was the fulfillment of legislation of a couple of years back. What exactly is going on? This new organization within the Department of Defense, known as the Offices of Special Trial Counsel, it's now fully responsible for investigating and prosecuting sexual assault cases. Sexual assault crimes are not the only ones that are going to be covered. The office will also be taking on stalking cases, domestic violence, kidnapping, and murder cases. There is a total of 13 criminal offenses that the office is going to be covering. Basically, what it means is that the establishment of these offices, from now on, it will have trained military lawyers that will be evaluating sexual assault cases independently without any involvement of unit commanders. Now, this then is still occurring under the JAG structure. That is to say, the trials aren't happening in the civil courts. They're still happening under military code of justice, but in a different place, as you said, than where the crime originated. Exactly, exactly. This has been years in the making. For years, advocates for sexual assault victims in the military were saying that victims' complaints were not being taken seriously. Because again, there were never an independent body to work through these claims because decisions about whether to investigate those crimes were left up to unit commanders. So now the chain of command is taken out of that process. Right. So they're not simply taken out of the trial process, but they're taken out of deciding whether something is tried in the first place. Correct. So last year, the Secretary of Defense signed a memo. He laid out policies and procedures for these offices. When it comes to command input, the memo says that, and I quote, the commander of any victim of an alleged covered offense and the commander of any accused in a case involving a covered offense will be given a reasonable opportunity to provide input to the special trial counsel regarding case disposition. But that input is not binding on the special trial counsel. The decisions that those prosecutors make are final and binding, meaning that it can be overridden by military commanders. It cannot be. It can't. All right. And give us a sense of what kind of caseloads they expect. How many cases does each office expect to get through? Where are these offices? How many of them are there? What's the structure of this whole new setup? It's going to be branch by branch, but I'll give you an example. The Navy, for example, has a total of 47 attorneys in its offices. That includes 24 certified attorneys and 23 co-chairs. Those co-chairs will assist the lead lawyers and 
they do expect to certify those lawyers in the next one or two years and basically what they said they will certify i think about like six to ten lawyers and then they will take the rest through the process in the next coming years and i think they gave like a ballpark of two years a navy senior official said that when they were figuring out staffing for the office they basically looked at the cases over the course of five years and based on those numbers the expectations is that each certified attorney will be able to handle 50 cases per year so for example the Navy expects their busiest offices to be in San Diego and in Norfolk, Virginia. And since those offices are the busiest, they expect the Norfolk office to have 10 attorneys, which means that basically that office will be able to clear around 500 cases each year. The Army said that they expect kind of a similar caseload per each attorney. But in terms of offices, he said that those offices with high volumes of cases may have three attorneys, smaller installations will have one attorney. And if they don't have a high caseload, they will be just kind of sending their attorneys there. Just to be clear, these attorneys will be prosecuting these cases. Yeah, that's correct. And what none of the announcements in each of the services has their own individual announcements of the stand-up of their offices for these special trial councils. None of them say where the defense will come from of the people that are accused because you can't presume they're all guilty because the charges are brought. And that we don't know yet. Fair to say? Yeah, that's fair to say. And what about cases that were already underway in the military chain of command with the officers? involved. Will those continue where they were or will they get switched to the new offices? The offices have long been building up to being fully operational and senior leaders don't expect like a lot of cases coming in, but their staff has already been working on the cases that occurred prior to December 28th. Now that the annual defense policy bill is out and it's signed, they have the discretion to exert authority over those prior offenses. It's also going to be a conversation on a case-by-case basis in terms of what cases they decide to exert authority over. I think they might be staying away from the more developed cases. So they basically said that if it's the day before trial, they wouldn't just come in and take over. But those cases that are developing or those cases that are just being reported or that just started, those would be good candidates for them to exert authority over. Yes. And once again, I want to point out, too, as you have reported, this whole gambit was kind of prompted by the sexual assault and rape problem that the military was having, still has. But murder, manslaughter, intimate visual images, kidnapping, as you mentioned, these are all also covered offenses that will be referred to these offices. Yes, this has been a decade-long issue. There has been a lot of back and forth, and complaints have just been growing that victim claim victims' claims are not being taken seriously. And the move was also kind of propelled by this gruesome case of Vanessa Guillen, and I think that happened in 2020. So that got everything off the dime after a decade of negotiating. But it's still a basically a compromise. I think some of the proponents from Congress wanted the civil courts to take it out of the military entirely. In this case, it's still under the JAG structure, but out of the chain of command at the place of occurrence, which is a big change. It's still, it's still a big change because, again, after what happened in 2020, Congress decided to take action and they 
passed the law in 2021. And now for these legislative changes to be implemented to the uniform code of military justice, there had to be an executive order. President Biden signed that order. And now we have these changes to the Uniform Code of Military Justice, which is a really big deal. And it's all effective immediately. Yes. Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, this senior executive is all about effective acquisition with finesse to support the crisis at the border. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Like every agency, Customs and Border Protection relies on its acquisition workforce to keep it supplied. In the ongoing crisis at the U.S. southern border, CBP appears to have a secret weapon in the person of its assistant commissioner for the Office of Acquisition. This long-serving official has also received a presidential rank award. Diane Sahakian joins me now. Ms. Sahakian, good to have you with us. Thank you for inviting me. You're excited about procurement and acquisition. Tell us more about uh, what you actually do there and how you support the mission. Well, first of all, I'm dual-hatted. I'm also the head of the contracting activity. It was attached to the job that I had recently been promoted from, and pretty soon I will that will go to somebody else. But pretty much for the last, I don't know, eight years or so, I have been the head of contracting activity for CBP. And if anybody follows the news, there's a lot of action at CBP, and I've always said I think we're the probably the most, one of the most, uh, I'll say, responsive and hard-charging procurement shops in government just to keep up everything that we know that is going on. It seems more going up than going down these days. What are the types of things, supplies, and so forth that are most needed as you know, CBP deals with the border? I would say the biggest challenge is the transportation, essentially moving the non-citizens around, like moving them around to where we can take proper care of them because it's all about the humanity. These are people, right? I mean, maybe they aren't supposed to be coming, but they're here and we need to treat them as such. That means, you know, you have to have the proper hygiene items, you know, nothing extravagant, but just enough to keep sicknesses at bay, and to make sure the children are well cared for. But pretty much now, since we have so many, it's really moving them to where we can process them quicker and better. So it's a lot of um, kind of every week, it's a different thing. We've been setting up some more facilities. These are sort of temporary facilities for, for them. And it's all so that we can get them properly processed and documented before they get to the next stage of the process. Because CBP really is only supposed to have people. I mean, ideally a day would be great, but I think the limit is like 72 hours. That time could be breached really quickly if people start backing up. So the the goal is just moving people out. So I would say transportation, temporary housing, and um, just the food, you know, the necessities. It's a very variable situation Mm -hmm. and it's hard to predict, you know, the demand signals like you can for something steady, like, you know, ammunition over the course of a year or uniforms over the course of a year, that kind of thing. And we do all that too. That's what's the challenge is the unpredictability. Right. And so what are some of the strategies you have to be able to not get into an anti-deficiency situation and yet keep Mm -hmm. people supplied with what they need? Mm -hmm. It could be, Mm -hmm. you know, 6,000 people this week, 2,000 the next Mm -hmm. week and Mm 10,000 the week after that. Mm -hmm. Well, we use every flexibility available to us in the acquisition regulations. But that being said, we do get ahead of things. 
we set up contractual vehicles, basically blanket purchase agreements for, for example, emergency supplies and services, which those folks know how to deploy quickly. We can do a quick runoff competition and get things. These are like the, you know, the hand washing stations and the port of Johns and snacks and, and things like that, little kitchen setups and so on and so forth if we need it. So I think that's that has saved us on many occasions because we have it. Also, our partners at the department have awarded large strategic contracts for the temporary shelters and so on and so forth. So we can do quick runoffs on those vehicles too. So there's a lot of, I'll say, and then there's good old GSA, right? We love GSA. So we use vehicles that are already in existence and we compete as much as we possibly can. A matter of fact, in CBP, we surpassed, I think we almost did 74% competition last year on $7 billion. That's a lot of competition, even with all this going on. So I think we've figured out how to compete most of this stuff quickly. We are speaking with Diane Sahakian. She's Assistant Commissioner for the Office of Acquisition at Customs and Border Protection and a Presidential Rank Award winner this year. Just maybe for those that are not involved in this type of thing day by day, you mentioned there's the acquisition function and the contracting function. They're related in the same way that finance and accounting are related. Maybe explain the interplay and where does the competitive outreach take place, acquisition or contracting? I think contracting, which we call procurement, you know, that's the name we use at CBP. So procurement is a subset of acquisition in the CBP world. And they are they kind of hand in hand. There are a lot of programs that require all sorts of, I'll say, gate reviews at the department level because they're big dollar. We're talking hundreds of millions of dollars, big things that last for a couple of years that require all kinds of like tests and evaluation and alternative reviews. Those are acquisitions. They are also procurements because you have to buy them but they have to go through a whole nother set of rules. But there's tons of procurements that aren't in the acquisition life cycle because they don't need to be because they're under like 300 million or, or whatever the dollar of the day is, right? So we do a lot of stuff in the sweet spot of, you know, under a couple of hundred million. We do a lot of stuff under a hundred million. We do a lot of stuff under a million. <laughs> you know, we just do all kinds of stuff. It sounds like you're pretty enthusiastic about this function. You have been doing it a long time. Give us the quick bio of your career. I started off in... um private industry for just a couple of years of all things as a contract administrator in court reporting, which is one of the most cutthroat businesses I ever could imagine. I got out of there and I joined the custom service. My first procurement, I came in as a GS-9, was a, was a P-3 airborne early warning aircraft. And my boss said to me, this is easy. It's a sole source with Lockheed. You can do it. Well, then we bought like eight of them. So that sort of shaped my career. First 10 years of my career was all Air Marine, buying aircraft, helicopters, and all the support. And then I sort of started moving around. And then my big change came when the Department of Homeland Security was set up in 2003, and Air Marine went to somewhere else, and I didn't have anything to do. And I said, how about I handle the Border Patrol? And that's where things started to change for me in terms of really being able to make a difference and see a wonderful organization that kind of never really had the support they needed before now have an opportunity to really do what the Border Patrol needed, you know, in terms of raising the warrant levels of people out there and making sure the training was up to speed, getting them the things they need when they need them. <laughs> you know, we're talking every week you have to buy fuel, you know, you have to buy food all the time. It's It was a whole other ball game. I learned quite a bit. So I, I would say that I feel like a whole new job when the Department of Homeland Security set up. Like I was going to leave government, but somebody said, you should just stay. It's going to change anyway. And it did. 
all for good. Yeah, and so that brings up the question of something you probably have learned to do well over the years, and that's balance the topical need, the variable need, the emergency need, say, in, as we discussed in the case of the border, versus the long-term sustainment and capital types of acquisitions so that people aren't driven crazy, but yet you don't neglect the long-term because of the need to focus on the short-term. How do you handle that one? Oh, that's a tricky one. So we realized, my deputy and I realized about two years ago that just keeping the, I call it keeping the lights on at CBP is about $4 billion a year. Just the IT running, everything running. Anything over that is when we get money for certain projects or if the border's going busy like it is. And that's kind of how we hit. And, you know, the wall money that that bumps us up. So that's why we got over $7 billion last year. We normally are sitting lately, I think, more around under $6 billion. I think this year will be, who knows, with the continuing resolutions are very problematic for us. I'll just throw that in. But in terms of, I think we have a certain group of people that do well in terms of contracting folks with the steady state. And then we have folks that get excited about working on Christmas Eve night, which we were had, to, which they had to do to set up facilities. So you have to find the talent in your shop and have faith in your folks that they can use the regulations at their fingertips and the contracts available to them to get to the right solutions. I'm happy to say that I have a pretty innovative shop and some really excited younger people that are willing to go to bat. You know, when I go, my legacy, I want it to be where have, we have the right staff to do this hard work. That's where I'm at. <laughs> you must have gotten along very well with Soraya Correa, the former and legendary DHS chief procurement officer. Yes. You know, I give her a lot of credit, too, you know, for giving us the opportunity to take those chances, you know, because I've seen a lot of change over the years that I've been in procurement where it was just like in the far, in the far, in the far. But I would always say, I get excited if I want to do something that's not in the FAR. I guess I can do it, right? It's not in the FAR. It's a whole other way of thinking. But that's kind of how I think. And now this innovation, I think, lets you think more that way. The FAR kind of tells you what you have to do and maybe what you, you shouldn't do. But if it's not in there, then some people will presume you can't do it. But no, if it's not in there... <laughs> find an innovative way to get it done. So it's just a whole other way of looking at things. Sure. And what did the rank people tell you that you were cited for this year in the, in the awards? Mostly it seemed to be my head of contracting role, If to be honest with you. Uh, some of it was the acquisition side of the house, but I think mostly for the work in just keeping up with the tremendous load on the border. I, I, I think because my partners in budget and finance also, the three of us together, that was pretty cool. You know, that doesn't happen a lot that we we're mission support type people that we get recognized in a law enforcement organization. But I mean, this one, this one was for my team. I mean, I don't do the work. You know, I manage it right. They're doing the work. They were so happy when I got the award, you know, and it made me feel good because it rec it recognizes the function as being important. That's the key here. Sure. And by the way, have you been to the border just to check out and see the stuff you have to buy in action? And that can possibly yeah. give you insight into what can help. I've been more times than I can count. I've been many times. The last time was a couple of months ago. They actually put me on a horse. I, I will never do that again. But <laughs> yeah, but but it, it gave me good insight. I could barely get the horse to go forward. Right. And they go into the brush with a weapon, holding on with one hand and having like night vision goggles on on a horse. I mean, it, it brings a whole new uh, level of, I can't believe they can do that, you know? So as much as I didn't like being on that horse, it opened my eyes to things they might need to do it better. 
because they, they're going into the brush. It's, it's incredible. It's one thing to be walking. It's a whole other thing on a horse. So, yeah. What yeah. do they say? A horse is a 1,200-pound animal with a brain the size of a peach. Yeah. Well, you know what? I was kind of scared, to be quite honest with you. But I got up there. I did what I could, and then I got right off. So, But it opened my eyes. Diane Sahakian is Assistant Commissioner for the Office of Acquisition and also the Chief of Contracts at Customs and Border Protection, and she's a Presidential Rank Award winner. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much. Now, in the coming weeks, we're going to be presenting a series of interviews with fellow Rank Award winners, so stay tuned for that. It'll be starting next week. In the meantime, find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive and subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the IRS Workforce Development Plan lacks one crucial element. But first, the telework debate dominated 2023. Will it finally settle out in 24? This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Telework and return to the office at agencies, that ranked among the defining factors this year for the federal workforce. But a lot more happened. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman joins me now with a review. And Drew, let's start with telework, which really, I don't think, changed that much. There was a lot of pull and tug and tug of war over when people or how much they would come back to work. It seems like it's settled into kind of a three-day-a-week stasis. I mean, what's your view? Yeah, this was a pretty interesting year, Tom, in terms of both conversations and some changes to telework. I think back in April, that's when the Office of Management and Budget memo first came out that called for agencies to increase what they called meaningful in-person work. And that's really where all this conversation kind of stemmed from and where both employees, agencies, Congress continued to have conversations about this throughout the year. After the release of that memo, you saw a lot of first confusion from federal employees. They didn't know what their agencies were going to do in response to the memo, but eventually agencies started releasing these plans one by one of, you know, okay, we're going to return our employees two days per pay period, three days per pay period, whatever it may have been. From there, you saw a lot of those plans start to take place. Just in this past fall, some still are going to be ahead in January. So it really just depends on the individual agency and what their decision is going to be to change that. But the Office of Personnel Management is stressed, even if there is a little bit of an increase in the in-office work, hybrid work is going to be pretty standard for federal employees moving forward, those who are eligible for telework in the first place. I think this really shows how much conditions, employee relations, expectations generally in industry have changed in 25 years. There was a time when a company could say, what are you, crazy? Get to the office. You know, that's where you work. No more. Definitely not. And I think that's going to be pretty staying for, you know, years, if not decades. Younger generations of employees Millennials, Gen Z have pretty much said, you know, this is something that they expect from employers. Again, not every job is eligible for telework or makes sense for remote work. But those that are, I think a lot of people are leaning towards that flexibility. We actually conducted several surveys throughout the year that showed that about two thirds of employees said that if their agency decided to bring them back to the office more often or entirely, that they would consider leaving their jobs. So 
there is that kind of feeling, I guess, that employees generally do enjoy the flexibility sure, yeah. um, of well, telework. Yeah, people yeah. always find reasons to say they'd leave their job, but, you know, do they? I don't know. I'm not going to test that one. And then lots of changes to regulations around federal hiring, the rule of many, and what are you seeing there? Where's that going to shake out? That was a pretty interesting one this year, and it was a little bit under the radar. The rule of many was a proposed regulation from OPM that basically would change how federal hiring managers would consider finalists for uh, jobs that they have open and give them a little bit more flexibility. So it, it kind of falls in between this outdated rule of three that the government used to have, where you could only select from the top three candidates of a hiring list versus what exists now, which is called category rating. Some hiring managers have said that's almost too broad. They get too many finalists to pick from, or they might not get the right people on that final list. So the rule of many is OPM's idea to kind of fall in between those two strategies and set a parameter early in the hiring process for either a percentage of candidates or a number of candidates that would be uh, qualified for the position and pick from those. Yeah, so that's taking root then. So right now it's a proposed regulation and it's likely going to be finalized sometime during 2024. But I think generally the consensus is, is pretty strong for this one. It's something that, you know, a lot of experts like those at the Partnership for Public Service, for example, have said, okay, you know, this is something that makes sense. It's going to help hiring managers, hopefully, at least that's the goal. And maybe we'll see this take effect or take root sometime within the next year or so. Yeah. So for an applicant then applying to one job, in effect, you're applying to many, many similar jobs. And if there's someone else that could use you other than the place you thought you were applying to originally, you might hear from them. Right. So that would be something called sharing certificates. And that's something that agencies have been focused on a lot as well. This idea of pooled hiring where you put out one job announcement and many agencies can sign on to it and then hire multiple candidates off of that one announcement. A lot of hiring managers have said that is another flexibility that is really beneficial, really speeds things up in the hiring process, something that OPM used a lot for the infrastructure law to try to onboard a lot of people very quickly over the last year or so. Right, because there are some functions, a lot of functions that agencies have in common I mean, if you apply for a law enforcement job one place, there's probably six other places, or acquisition, or IT, all of those things are kind of common. You know, that's something that, you know, OPM actually just this year launched a new platform called the uh, Pooled Hiring Platform on USA Jobs, and that's a place where agencies now can post all of these shared certificates or shared job openings where maybe they hired a couple IT managers or data scientists, now they're passing off their list of qualified candidates where other agencies, as you said, looking for the same or similar position, can then grab those candidates who are already vetted. It makes the hiring process a little bit easier for those secondary sure. agencies. All right. Come into the pool. The water's great. And then the Pathway Program, that also got an update in the past year. Yeah, that program, it's over 10 years old now. And where OPM was trying to change things, they said that the way that the hiring process and the program operates is quite different from the original regulations and how they were written. So now they're expanding program eligibility for recent graduates by emphasizing skills-based hiring. So maybe you have some technical skills or something that makes you qualified for the program, but not necessarily a degree or an educational background 
background in a certain field. So they're looking for alternatives to try to expand the pools to go into pathways. And then they're also trying to streamline the process to go from being in that pathways program, which only lasts for a couple of years, and convert those program participants into full-time federal employees. So there were actually a lot of technical changes in the language to that pathways program, but I think OPM is kind of hoping that it will broaden the program and paid opportunities as well for early career employees. Yeah, the whole gestalt here is trying to speed up federal hiring without giving up all the merit principles and making sure you get the right people. But there's that perception for many years that it's just too slow. And a lot of this seems to be aimed at getting things done faster. I think that is true. There are a lot of small changes like the Pathways Program, Rule of Many, um, skills-based hiring, all these things are like smaller ways or little ways to kind of eat away at this federal hiring reform goal that OPM has and has had for a long time. So I, I think you see a lot of agencies, hiring managers, unions, organizations just in support of this stuff, but hoping for even more and more faster to reform that process in the, in the long run. All right. And Tuesday, it will be the second day of 2024. Everyone will be back at work, either telephonically or in the office. What do we expect from the Office of Personnel Management as their top priorities for 2024? One thing that OPM Director Kira Nahuja did emphasize recently is an expansion of those pooled hiring actions. I think that's going to be a really big one. They've already said that there's eight pooled hiring actions across government that are planned. In comparison, there were just five this past year. So I think we're going to see a bit of a ramp up in that area. They're also looking to finalize some regulations on protecting federal workers from the possible return of Schedule F. I think that's going to be another really big topic in 2024. We'll just have to see what OPM has planned, but there's going to be a lot of, I believe, finalizing regulations wrapping up next year. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much, and we'll be looking forward to your reporting in 2024. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the IRS Workforce Development Plan lacks one crucial element. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The IRS has taken several big steps recently on the personnel front. It's brought in people to help improve taxpayer service. And just the other day, Commissioner Danny Werfel said he'd reorganize management to emphasize service, compliance, technology, and operations. But there's a missing element, according to my next guest. Longtime leadership professor Bob Tobias joins me now. And Bob, let's review some of the things on that people front. First of all, that you have pointed out that are pretty positive. Yes, Tom, incredibly positive. Uh, recently, IRS Commissioner Danny Werfel testified at a congressional hearing that the IRS massive hiring effort of 5,000 employees increased the IRS ability to answer taxpayer questions from 15%. Imagine that, 15% in 2022 to 87% in 2023. So the IRS achieved the highest level of service to taxpayers in a decade. It, it, it was just an extraordinary effort with extraordinary results. However, you know, there's always a however. At the same time, the Government Accountability Office pointed out in a report that 
the IRS has a 16% turnover rate among its critical workforce processing tax returns. Now, the explanation that the IRS provided was that it put its strategic workforce plan on hold in 2019 because it didn't have enough funding to do the work. Therefore, it couldn't address the turnover question because it needed to determine what critical mission activities it had on board, where skill gaps existed, and what skill gaps will be needed in the future. But I think that's all misplaced. I believe turnover will not decline, even if the IRS closes its information gap and provides skill gap training as they promised to do. Right. There's a basic difference there because you can have great plans and you know what your workforce needs will be. And then therefore you can direct your hiring and saying we need 5,000 people to do this, 2,000 people to do that. Let's train them to do all of that. But that doesn't necessarily create the conditions that people, once you have them hired and trained, want to stick around. That's right. That's right on the mark, Tom, because employees don't leave a new job. Employees leave a job because they don't feel connected to the workplace community. And community creation community creation is a function of effective leadership. There was no discussion of the need for leadership development at the congressional hearing. So leaders need to be trained on how to connect with those they lead to create a supportive workplace community, especially, especially with so many IRS employees who work several days a week at home. I mean, isn't that been one of the major ongoing critiques of the way the government does personnel over the decades is you have this senior executive service, but often people moving up to it really don't get the essential training they need on that personnel management front. They somehow get promoted, but they don't have the leadership training. I mean, this has come up before. That's correct. They don't get the leadership development training so that they can do effective leadership work. So relationship creation is a leadership skill that can be learned, but an agency needs to recognize it needs to be taught and it needs to be evaluated just like any other skill. So ensuring the acquisition of leadership development skills is critical, but it's not enough. It's only the critical first step because the IRS has to ensure that what is taught is actually used and used effectively in the workplace. We're speaking with Bob Tobias. He's retired professor at the Key Executive Leadership Program at American University, also a retired federal union president. And I want to get back to one point you mentioned, too, and that is leadership training is particularly required in the age when people are teleworking. And that has got to add a really difficult inducing element when people are not physically together, can't see one another, don't interact informally much, if at all, how you build cohesiveness and team belonging in a situation like that. Well, Tom, it is difficult, but it's difficult primarily because when I have people who are working at home, I have to change the way I relate to them. I can no longer count on automatically bumping into them. I cannot automatically count on them coming into my office. So I have to create a different environment where I am constantly talking to them, making appointments to talk to them, as opposed to hoping I will bump into them in the workplace. So I have to take on 
a responsibility that I didn't have to take on before. I have to change my behavior in this new world. And so it is challenging. It is different. But I assure you, it can be done. But even if, I, if I'm doing all of that, I have to have the time to do leadership work as part of my workday. In a historically short-staffed environment where, where you have high leader-to-lead ratios, leaders become doers of work with no time to do leadership work. So when the work piles up, leaders pitch in, they do their work. So the leader might just be limited to assigning work and doing work rather than spending time on leader work. Right. That's a good point. And I think you know, just the industrial age we're in seems to, I don't know, denigrate those things. I mean, we also got rid of support staff. People make fun of, you know, secretaries or administrative assistants, which to me were incredibly valuable people with a great deal of skill that really enabled the rest of the organization to do what it had to do. But those have been wiped out in a lot of areas. There's many fewer of that type of person. By the same token, that idea of middle management, leadership has been, I don't know, maybe denigrated on the altar of productivity. We assume, and I think often erroneously, Tom, that everything can be done on my computer, you know. <laughs> it's turned us all into secretaries. Anybody who travels and tries to make airline reservations and who is old enough to remember when you had, when you called a company and they did it all and you just breathed a sigh of relief, know that access to a computer only increases the anxiety and amount of work you do. All right. So getting back to the leadership training question, then, what's your thought that the IRS ought to be doing here or any any large organization that's trying to effectuate reform and change improvement? Well, it seems to me, Tom, that this issue of developing leaders is not just an IRS problem. It's a government-wide problem. Research project after research project has shown that the greatest reason for federal employee leadership failure is promoted leaders continue to do what they've done in the past in their new leadership role. They don't do leadership work, all of which means that leaders at every level beyond the first level have to hold the leaders they lead responsible for leader work for evaluating leader work, giving feedback about leader work. Leaders who are not effective as leaders should be put in non-leader roles where their expertise can be used rather than failing as a leader and poisoning an entire group who then chooses to leave the IRS or any other government agency because they experience a non-supportive community environment. Yeah, I heard a great expression from a retired military officer who nearly failed in his first attempt at being an officer or an executive in business after leaving the military. The processes were totally different. The expectations of leadership were totally different. And his expression was, what got you here won't get you there. That's exactly right. You know, as a person who wants to be a leader, I have to give up maybe the technical expertise that got me here in favor of learning what I need to get me there. And that has to be provided by government agencies. And once they provide that development, they have to give them time in the day to actually be a leader. And then they have to be evaluated about their work. 
All right. Well, maybe Danny Werfel is feeling on his shoulder a gentle hand of Bob Tobias, former federal union president, retired professor in the key executive leadership program at American University. Always great to get your thoughts. Thank you very much, Tom. It's a pleasure to be with you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It was another busy year in cybersecurity we just concluded. Federal agencies got behind a new national cyber strategy, but also had to grapple with ever-evolving cyber threats. And artificial intelligence also posed some new risks. Here to talk about all of that and more, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And Justin, as always, the year produced a cavalcade of cybersecurity headlines. What are some of the highlights of the last year? Well, naturally, the new national cyber strategy was the the big one for federal folks, for sure. Uh, That was released by the White House back in March. And the the big thing with that strategy is it really uh, aims to, quote unquote, rebalance the responsibility for managing security risks from sort of customers to big technology manufacturers, big tech companies. And then it also stakes out an effort to establish cybersecurity regulations for critical infrastructure, which is a a big shift from kind of the voluntary public-private partnership model. So in June, the White House followed that strategy up with a big implementation plan laying out 65 specific initiatives agencies will take to carry out the strategy. There's a lot in the works here across the federal government when it comes to carrying out different aspects of that strategy already. Yes, strategy with 65 jobs to do. That sounds like kind of something that gets to be ponderous after a while. Any initial activity outputs yet from the strategy, or is it too early to tell? There have been a couple things so far. One is that the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency has been putting together secure by design guidance that really is aimed at telling technology manufacturers how they can make more secure products from the get-go instead of putting a product out there and then it's up to the customer to constantly patch and make sure they have multi-factor authentication turned on and different things like that. Another one that Jim Richberg, he's Fortinet's head of cyber policy, pointed out to me, the Federal Communications Commission has come out with its cyber labeling program for smart devices. So when folks buy a refrigerator or something like that that has software in it because everything is software and is digital nowadays, they can see how secure it might be based on the label. So those are a few things that have already happened and there will be more, more is expected in 2024. You know, in looking at the ads for toys for the just concluded Christmas season, a lot of them are internet connected. Things that talk back to children and answer things. These are not like the old toys where everything was on essentially a record inside that toy, but it's reaching out to the internet. They're like a bunch of soft, cuddly Alexas, you know, and therefore they're spying devices. They could be listening in when you're yelling at the dog or whatever. So that's the kind of thing I think people see emerging. This ubiquitous listening in internet everywhere we go is kind of the new cyber threat. And threats, those changed. What emerged in the past year We had Log4j the year before that. The big one that came out in 2023 that people, cyber experts specifically highlighted was in May, CISA and some other government agencies, the National Security Agency issued what was a pretty remarkable cyber advisory. That was that People's Republic of China related cyber actors had infiltrated the networks of U.S. critical infrastructure, and they were doing so by, quote unquote, living off the land using built-in network administration tools to evade detection. That 
folks said will have implications for government and the private sector for years to come in terms of how they have to secure themselves, constantly monitor their networks. It came out later on that China reportedly may be infiltrating critical infrastructure to not just spy on on folks, but potentially disrupt it down the lines. It's things like water systems. So that marks a shift in kind of the cyber threat landscape here this year from espionage to more active attacks. And that's something that a lot of experts pointed to me as, as a big shift in 2023. Right. It seems like people are less reluctant to point out what they know to be the source of the problems, such as China. There used to be a little bit of reticence about, well, we don't know, we can't attribute, but we can attribute. And now they're starting to say it out loud. Yeah, that's right. There's certainly, you know, a lot more attribution in the advisories that we see coming out. It's it's not as obscure and vague as maybe it used to be. And what about specific threats to federal agencies? They've got their own fish to fry. Yeah. Well, you know, there were a couple big cyber high-profile cyber attacks that affected federal agencies in 2023. One was the MoveIt breach. MoveIt, the file transfer system, was breached over Memorial Day weekend, what was potentially the biggest ransomware attack ever. And that ensnared the data of several federal agencies, including the Energy Department and the Department of Health and Human Services. They they used the MoveIt application. And this wasn't considered necessarily a high-impact breach that affected federal operations, but it was a big one nonetheless. The other one to point out was suspected Chinese hackers again were able to infiltrate Microsoft's cloud-based email systems to steal emails sent by Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo and other high-level federal officials. That was a big deal that came out back over the summer. It's now being reviewed by DHS's Cyber Safety Review Board as part of a broader review of cloud uh, cybersecurity. So, you know, that that's going to be a big report that comes out next year. And on the regulatory front, you know, there was the executive order, but that goes back now to what, 2021, which people are citing as kind of the Bible for what agencies and by extension industry should be doing. But there is a push now for more cyber regulations. Give us the review of that front. Yeah, the national cyber strategy, as we mentioned, envisions more cyber regulations, specifically for critical infrastructure. But really, one of the big actions that came out this year was from the Securities and Exchange Commission. Uh, They probably made the most noise on the regulatory front in 2023. First, the SEC issued new cyber rules for publicly traded companies. Those rules received a lot of backlash from industry and some members of Congress, but they actually still went into effect earlier in December. And so that requires publicly traded companies to do things like disclose when they have a material cyber incident. So those rules are in effect. That, that's a, a big deal for a lot of corporations out there. And then the SEC also brought legal action against SolarWinds and its chief information security officer over that big hack back in 2020. As the SEC is alleging fraud and internal security control failures. That was a big legal action that the SEC has brought forward. In addition to the regulations, that now has a lot of companies thinking a lot harder about cybersecurity. And that's a big point of contention between industry and government is fine if you want disclosure of cyber incidents and cyber breaches, we'll be glad to do that. But then don't make us liable you know, for lawsuits or for action, say, by the Federal Trade Commission or, as you point out, the SEC, because then... You know, why would you bring your case against yourself to these agencies? So that issue of lawsuits versus disclosure, 
so that everyone can learn, that remains a tense spot, doesn't it? That's right. And I think that's another thing that the Biden administration wants to work through is this idea of a legal safe harbor for companies. You know, if they do the right thing, then they shouldn't be punished for being hacked. But what is what is the right thing? How do you get to safe harbor? That's that's a big question. Well, the White House doesn't have to worry about industry. They've got to worry about the tort bar. (laughs) This is a big impediment to a lot of these types of things. And finally, we've got to talk about artificial intelligence because that is a big cyber topic in and of itself, the safety of your algorithms and the data. And it also produces a lot of data, which has to be protected. So each way you look at AI, you know, there's a cyber angle to it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's all about data security. There's the potential for some of these models to leak data potentially. And and then, you know, how safe are they to actually use on, you know, more sensitive data? These are all issues agencies have been working through. In October, President Joe Biden issued that big AI executive order that, among many other activities, directs agencies to address the risks of AI, including cybersecurity. In November, CISA issued a new AI roadmap where the agency says it's going to work to ensure AI systems are protected from cyber threats, while also deterring the malicious use of AI capabilities because AI could be used to gin up cyber attacks to write certain code, and and that could be used in cyber attacks. At the same time, CISA and other cyber defense uh, organizations see the potential utility of using AI to help defend against cyber attacks, to maybe train people on cybersecurity. So (laughs) AI is interwoven into almost everything these days, and cybersecurity is no different. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. And you'll stay on the beat in the coming year, correct? Oh, you bet. Check out all of his coverage at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.